Welcome back to The Theology of the Buddy, a podcast for Catholics who love the beauty of the church's sacred tradition. This is episode 78. My name is Chris, and I'm joined today by my freedom-loving co-hosts, Mike and Brooke. Before we begin, if you haven't yet, make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening and leave us a five-star review if you can. We'd really appreciate it, and it would really help us out. It helps us get seen on all the different podcasting platforms. Also, uh, don't forget to drop by our website, theologyofthebuddy.com, for all of our show notes and past episodes. And if you haven't yet followed us on social media, we'd love for you to do that. You can find us at Theology of the Buddy on Instagram uh, and on Facebook and at Stay Traddy, all one word, on Twitter. So today on the show, we are getting into uh, the topic of Hilaire Belloc's seminal work. I don't know if that's the proper word, um, but it's on the servile state. Um, So um, before we do that, though, we're going to throw it over to Brooke for our update on the trucker situation. Brooke? I've prepared a little haiku to tell you about the update on the trucker situation. Let's hear it. Honk, 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 honk. They are still there, guys. <laughs> Beautiful. Moving. Profound. Nice one. Honk. <laughs> Uh, I want to, I want to, I want to dedicate this episode, by the way, to a, to a follower of ours on Instagram. She is, she's a sweet lady. She goes by the name of Madame Green Acres on Instagram. Um, and she's been like, been like blasting me for like the last two weeks on like every post I make about the truckers. So this episode is dedicated to her. I don't know why she follows us, but I appreciate it. And uh, (laughs) yeah. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. Whoever you are. Yeah. Now I have to go check out all the Instagram posts. I usually don't (laughs) go on Instagram. (laughs) Yeah. You're not like artsy enough for Instagram. No. (laughs) No, I'm not. So, um, yeah. So the, the trucker situation, man, they're still there. They're still going. Um, And despite what the media is saying there has been in the last two weeks, more change in the rhetoric and the kind of position of certain people and, and politicians than there has been over the last year. I mean, Saskatchewan announced that they're dropping the Vax pass. Alberta announced they're dropping the Vax pass. What's his name? Legault. Uh, the premier of Quebec has announced he will meet with the truckers. That's awesome. Uh, and he also dropped the tax and yeah. dropped the vax we were in Quebec. That's right. The vax tax or unvaxed tax. Uh, and, and Aaron O'Toole, the, the head of the conservative party gone, kicked out of caucus, uh, or not kicked out of caucus, mm-hmm. but kicked out of his, his leadership his position. Leadership position. By the caucus. Yeah. Um, which is huge, huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, and the media is like, yeah, well, none of this has to do with the truckers. I think it has everything to do with the truckers and what the truckers have inspired in the people of Canada. Yeah. 
Definitely. And it has a lot to do with the fact that what inspired and I think spurred this huge of a reaction from the truckers was Trudeau being and other leaders being so far out of touch with the rest of the world. Well, other countries are dropping all restrictions. Trudeau is saying, you know what? Now's a good time to just implement the harshest measures yet. Just so funny because it's like back then, like people were still traveling over the border and he was so like slow on doing anything. And what do you that, mean back when? Remember when things were just starting and they were allowing like international travelers in and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And people were like, you should stop. You should stop. You should stop. And he's like, no, no, didn't do that. And now all of a sudden he's like, yeah, we'll just punish our own people. It's okay. NBD. Yeah. So it's all related. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, yeah, I fully believe that, that there is great good that's coming from it, that there is a lot of spin from the media. I've been hearing about things from people on the ground there, friends who are there right now. And it's nothing like what the government is saying it is, or, you know, it's peaceful. I mean, they are, (laughs) these truckers are cleaning up literally the city of Ottawa. Their crime is literally down in the city of Ottawa right now because of the presence of the truckers, because the present, the, the, the truckers will literally kick their asses if they, if somebody gets out of line, (laughs) you know what I mean? You should, uh. If you're listening and you want to see live what the uh, protest has actually been like, I highly recommend a channel called Auto Walks. Um, he's been doing live streams just about every single day and for hours just walking through the streets, filming everything going on. Not a lot of commentary, no bias, just walking around, showing you everything that's happening on the ground. And it's extremely valuable to just sit down and watch for a while. Tell you what you're not going to see. You're not going to see a whole bunch of Confederate flags or Nazi flags or people being hooligans and starting fights or, you know, committing vandalism. You're going to see a lot of honking. You're going to see a lot of people walking the streets with signs, sometimes dancing. And you're going to see... You're going to see a lot of tables set up, giving out food to people and stuff like that. Like, literally, it's just people parked in the streets and getting the message out. I mean, it's a far cry from other protests that I've seen. Yeah. Let's be honest. This protest is cleaner than World Youth Day. I mean, it doesn't take much, but yeah, it is. For sure. (laughs) World Youth Day was super dirty. Yeah. it's, It's a mess, you know? But these guys are both litur. <laughs> it's a mess, both liturgically and literally. Word, word. I still have that image burned into my mind of the guy during, like, the I don't know. I think it was the Sanctus ripping his shirt off and like whipping oh. it around. We're like, Wee-oo! you know, Mm-mm. that's so gross. Forget it. Forget it. Gosh. Yeah. Like that's just dumb. Uh, it, it hurts you doesn't it it does oh, it's boy. like yeah. did he think that was a good idea maybe he was high he was, could have been high at mass man it's just bad man when i went man. to world youth day 
when I went to World Youth Day, this is this is the like this is the trauma that I one of the major traumas from youth ministry that I had as a kid. I went to you I went to World Youth Day as a teenager, and there were these girls that met up with these American boys from Texas or Florida or something. And they're like macking out, you know, and I'm, and I go and I just ream her, ream her the guys out. Like you guys, like this is a Catholic event. Like, what are you here for? And I did that. And the youth minister yanked me aside and told me to lay off them. Oh boy. Yeah. And that being too rigid. I was being too rigid. You're right. I wasn't accompanying them enough anyway that's, yeah, that's evangelization not proselytization chris <laughs> culture of encounter <laughs> you guys are really making me not regret not having gone to life team dude i switched parishes. does that mean you do regret going to i life don't team? regret not i don't regret not going <laughs> i <laughs> I'm glad I did not go. <laughs> I don't not regret not not going. Sorry, I'm still thinking about the guy th- whipping his shirt around. It's just <laughs> during during like, the song too. Oh, yeah. I wasn't even there, and it's burned into my head. Thank yeah. you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, no, man. But this was this was prior to going to the life team that Mike and I met at. Just for the record. So, okay. Okay. Yeah, it's yeah. World Youth Day Toronto. Yep. My parents didn't let me go to it. Ah. Uh, Wah, wah. You're too little. Too little. <laughs> Chris is only one year older than me. Uh, too, I don't know. too young to begin the training. <laughs> uh, hey, you guys want to talk about the Servile State? Yeah, let's do it. I have an icebreaker. Oh. oh, I thought the haiku was the icebreaker. That was no, a good that was a really good one. Let's hear the icebreaker, Thank Brooke. you. Okay. So we discovered something new this week that I hadn't discovered yet. I think we've shared on the podcast before that we only have a few places to eat in Dorchester. Um, well, Little Caesars, Little Caesars had some coupons, <laughs> and one of them was for stuffed crust pizza. It has changed the way that I look at Little Caesars pizza. What? Yes. Have you had it? Not their this stuffed is one crust, of those no. things where I feel like. Brooke's excitement is just like off the chain about something that everyone else knew about. <laughs> I didn't know about it because I don't Chris. I don't eat garbage pizza. Because like stuffed Chris. crust stuffed crust pizza has been around for a long time. But, but I'm <laughs> just I'm just trying it. Honey, I'm just trying this it. This is your first hey, time you, trying you know, stuffed crust pizza ever? Ever. Oh. Yes. Mm. But it's made out of the same dough as their crazy bread. And it's just like filled with cheese. It's not like they ain't skimping on the matzo cheese in that. Okay. And it's so good. But get this. So Vincent loves pepperoni pizza. Our three-year-old loves pepperoni pizza. And he'll eat the entire pizza, but he will leave the stuffed crust. Oh, me. That's, that's, a, that's a child who loves you. Is this a sponsored episode, by the way? No, but Little Caesars, <laughs> Little Little Caesars, I am here for it. I am here for that stuffed crust. What we're really talking about here is um, the men in the hierarchy who go beyond their power and act like Little Caesars <laughs> over the uh, the lady. That is they, a perfect they, segue. They, they stuff their crusts with the the money of the poor 
Mm. The pizza's pretty inexpensive if you use a coupon. It's $6.99 for a cheese pizza. Speaking okay. of stuffing your crusts. Listen, hold on. I do I do want to make a controversial statement though. I okay. do not like stuffed crust pizzas. Oh, <gasps> because it reminds you of matzo sticks? A little bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, did you guys see okay, this is my speaking of stuffed crust. Did you guys see the interview with um Raymond Arroyo and I think it's Damien uh, who's that guy, the spectator guy? I have no um, idea what you're talking about. Anyway, this British guy, editor of The Spectator, and he was talking about how all the uh, bishops really don't want to listen to Arthur Roach. And <laughs> he had this hilarious turn of phrase where he's like, they're all sick of seeing him stuffing his face in all the Roman restaurants <laughs> and lording it over them like he's already a cardinal. <laughs> <laughs> that just made me think of that when you talked about stuff cross. <laughs> okay, never mind. It's just a random thing that entertained me so much. I just I love like there are certain things I love about our friends in the United Kingdom. Like I remember when I went to Maryvale, I, I remember I told you this story where the uh the priest at Maryvale goes up and uh, has to prepare for mass and he goes up to the altar and this is in a, like a Novus Ordo setting. Right. So he goes up to the altar, opens up the sacramentary and like this look of just shock and disgust comes across his face and he goes, he starts flipping the pages and moving the ribbons. He's like, someone's been mucking about, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Like you just got so ticked that somebody moved the ribbons in the sacramentary. <laughs> uh, I love their sayings. I mean, our Canadian sayings probably sound just as weird to them, yeah. but we're gonna ours are correct. We're gonna need to do that episode of the uh, the the typical Ontario Southwestern Ontario phrases. We'll do that. Oh yeah. Um, maybe yeah. we'll do that for the next episode. Sounds good. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, so I I have a very important question to ask. According to Hilaire Belloc, does he think I'm a slave? Technically, no. But um, approaching a state that someday might be analogous to one, yes. As generally, the uh, thrust of the servile state is that, at least in his time in industrial England, they were trending toward establishing what he calls the servile state, which uh, essentially is a state where most people are slaves. Takes a few definitions to kind of make that clear, though. And I would say, by his definition, we haven't quite reached that state yet, but we are closer than he was, a lot closer. So I think servile state, as he defines it, would be where most people are in a state of technical slavery, meaning there's a positive law that says you have to labor for the gain of others. And that applies to the mass of the people in the society. That kind of thing, I would say we're not quite there, but there are certain elements of our society that are 
tending towards it and approaching it in certain ways. Well, like even, even like to a degree, it's not the same in a way, but I mean, COVID, for example, you have people who are literally being forced against their will to do something for the quote unquote good of the collective. I guess you could see it as analogous that way for sure. Although it's not like labor, so it's not exactly what you would call slavery. Right. It's definitely a loss of freedom. Right. That's in some ways analogous. And he's focused in this book specifically on economic freedom, right? Like the freedom to labor or withhold your labor. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what is the, uh, the line between being a slave and being free. Now, would he, would he have, or did he, is it true that he held that all of this kind of situation that we kind of see ourselves in didn't actually start with the industrial revolution, but actually started with King Henry the eighth? Essentially. Yeah. That's one of the um, points of contention in the book where it kind of differs from I'd say maybe a majority interpretation of history where most people would say um, our industrial society turned out the way it did because of the technological advances in the industrial revolution. But um, he would say the evolution of this capitalist society was deeply changed by the Protestant Reformation in England, and specifically the annexing of monastic lands by the government, which in turn were basically doled out to the rich and became the foundation for the uh, new capitalist system. So essentially, all of this land was essentially given to a small number of rich people, right? Mm -hmm. That really had no right to it. But... Like it was, it didn't come to them by nobility or anything like that. It came to them because of the king's decisions. Right. Because they had the power to either buy this land or get it through influence with the government because they were rich and influential already. And the state of annexing it was a complete mess. And Belloc's contention is basically that England's implementation of the Industrial Revolution, because of its dominant position in the world at the time basically greatly shaped the industrial revolution in the entire world because it was the world's dominant empire at the time so there's brooke and i have been talking a lot about this book as i've been reading it and she's been listening to the audiobook and there are so many definitions that like we were struggling with how to nail down because Mm -hmm. they're not really in our common parlance we're not like economists or historians or anything so may i quiz you chris (laughs) oh gosh it better not be math just kidding (laughs) it's all about uh wealth and capital which has to do with math but we're not going to do any math okay so do you know what the different um types of states are that he talks about in the servile state, no, they're servile. And then he talks about the difference between the servile state and capitalist, socialist, 
and distributive states. And I find it really interesting that, like, before reading this book, I didn't really know precisely how to define them or differentiate the three. And neither did Brooke, right? No. It's so out, out of my scope of understanding, my mm-hmm. scope of literature. Yeah, it all comes down to means of production. This is mm-hmm. a weird a weird thing to think about, but you got to start from defining means of production. Yeah. So Chris, what are the means of production? This is your quiz. Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> if you had to guess, best guess. Uh, like the means of production. Uh, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm going to sound so stupid here. Um, <laughs> that's the goal. Make Chris look stupid. Yeah. Well, it doesn't take that's much. That's why I wanted really? to do this topic. <laughs> doesn't take much, especially when I haven't had the chance to prepare. Um, so like, yeah, like the, the means of production being like you put the production into the hands of like the rich, put it into the hands of, you know, m- you know, laboring workers would be, one means of production, right? Maybe. I don't know if I understand the question. <laughs> okay. Means of production means to Belloc, and I guess probably to all economists, means of producing wealth. Okay. Wealth being just about anything that's humans have shaped to their advantage. So any product, any food or whatever um means of production is land and capital so the things you need in order to make stuff tools factories land even like stuff like stockpiles of food so that people can work (laughs) stuff like that but that's like understanding that is key to understanding the differences between these two societies or three societies, capitalist, collectivist, and distributist. And that's what I think was totally lacking. Like it's not just a matter of rich and poor. It's a matter of who owns the means of production. And Belloc had a really interesting turn of phrase that kind of Ah, let me try and find it. But it kind of was a light bulb moment for me in seeing the importance of this. He says, to control the production of wealth is to control human life itself. And listen to this in the context of um, the last two years as well. To control the production of wealth is to control human life itself. To refuse the man the opportunity for the production of wealth is to refuse him the opportunity for life. In general, the way in which the production of wealth is by law permitted is the only way in which the citizens can legally exist. Does that make any sense? Maybe it's like pretty wordy to get at first glance, but as as Brooke would say, explain it to me like I'm five. (laughs) Like what he's saying is our human life on earth is dependent on wealth, meaning material goods, everything from food to housing, to furniture, to clothing, that's wealth, right? 
So the means of producing the things you need to live um, is the means of production in a sense. But think about it in that sense. The way in which we are legally allowed to acquire the goods of sustaining our life is the way in which we're legally allowed to exist as a citizen. That just kind of highlights the, uh, the importance of this concept, means of production. Okay, so I spent a lot of time on that already, but um, okay. So let me talk about these three different societies. Um, and they all have to do with the means of production, who holds it. Um, capitalist society is basically the one in which we live right now. It's defined by Belloc as one in which a few people own the means of production, that is capital and land. The vast majority of people are what's called proletariat. They lack the means of production. They must rely on being employed by those who have the means of production in order to live. Okay, that's capitalist. And obviously its flaws are important because that's what we live in. Collectivist or socialist, obviously the definition is a state in which the government controls the means of production. You can have possessions, but you can't have the means of production. You can have clothes on your back, but you can't have a farm. The government owns the farm and you work on it if they allow you to, right? In theory, the government controls all the means of production for the good of the citizens. In practice, that has never happened. And then the distributive state or and this is how Belloc describes European society at basically the height of Christendom is as a distributive society, one in which the vast majority of the citizens own a piece of the means of production. They either have a trade and they have the tools of the trade, they have land, they have um, you know, livestock, things like that. They can actually provide for themselves with their own tools, their own capital and land. And they're economically free because of it in a way that we are not in a capitalist society. So there, I'm done lecturing on those definitions. <laughs> yeah. I was, what do you I was think? Does that ring to... any bells of truth? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I mean, um, Chesterton talks about distributionism. We talked about that in an earlier podcast. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. But it says here, capitalism, I, I guess this is from, I think this is Belloc who said this. It says here, capitalism must keep alive by non-capitalist methods, great masses of the population who would otherwise starve to death. Right. Yeah, and this is part of the whole argument of the servile state that um, the capitalist society is unstable and essentially unsustainable because it provides freedom, like economic freedom for people, 
but it provides it in such a way that they're always in constant anxiety about whether they can provide for themselves because they're reliant on employment by mm -hmm. people who own the means of production. He had this great quote where he says, uh, in the 17th century, a man feared to go to mass lest the judges should punish him. But today a man fears to speak in favor of some social theory he holds to be just and true, lest his master should punish him. So he's talking about how people are more afraid nowadays sometimes of being fired from their mm -hmm. jobs than they are even of being put in jail. Because in a capitalist society, a pure capitalist society, and this does apply more to his time than ours, in a pure capitalist society, if you get fired, if the people with the means of production don't let you work for them, you starve, you die. That's mm -hmm. it. Now, that's why, like, because of that tension and danger, that kind of society is unstable. It's unsustainable. And people are always working to dismantle it and kind of shore up that weakness and protect those people. And often this is out of like a love for the people and a good intention, right? But he argues that um, all of the reformers in society, whether they are ill-intentioned or well-intentioned, tend to push society toward a servile state from capitalism. They don't tend to push it toward um, distributivism. And even if they intend to push it towards socialism, they tend instead to push it toward the servile state. Yeah. I read a quote that said, um, the servile state emerging from capitalism is one in which the, quote, owners remain few and the proletarian mass accept security at the, at the expense of servitude, end quote. Absolutely. Yeah. He presents this great um, kind of mental exercise where he's basically asks you to imagine a destitute person who is starving and basically think about how much of their freedom would they be willing to give up if they knew that they would never starve again, that they would never again lack for a home or mm -hmm. lack for the basic um, needs of life, right? If they were guaranteed to have work and employment and to be cared for, would how hard would they cling to that capitalist freedom? Mm -hmm. I think the answer is kind of self-evident in the drift of our society towards, you know, less and less pure capitalism and more kind of um, socialist-inspired policies that um, are really kind of bringing us toward that state. Right? He talks a lot about how. Um, policies that are meant to help people who are poor in a capitalist society often are short-sighted solutions and they just bring us closer to having that uh, compulsory um, work essentially mm -hmm. yeah it was really interesting reading reading this and listening to what you're saying now and kind of reflecting on how the language kind of felt foreign but it's almost like it felt foreign because I was so used to be living the way that I had. You know what I mean? It's like, 
how dependent I was on getting a job. Because if I didn't have a job, I was basically worthless to society. Like, you know, straight out of school, if you don't have a job and you're working like anywhere, McDonald's or a restaurant or a factory or something, and you didn't have that paycheck and you weren't working for somebody, like you're a low life. Yeah. That's the fear that he's talking about, right? Oh yeah. I was so, I was so scared of not being able to afford to go to school. And I was afraid of like not having money to, I don't know, get a car or anything like that. Um, so yeah, I was getting like flashbacks. Like I'm never going to find a job. Like out of university, I applied to like 63 places. I, I remember that number specifically because I tallied it. I was out of university. I had, you know, I had an arts degree, whatever, but I was a, a super motivated person and I had a really good resume and I was so desperate to work. I was applying everywhere and anywhere that would take me. And then when I finally got a part-time job, it was almost like, I'm going to be the best slave you ever had. You yeah. know what I mean? I will do anything to work here. Like- Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what he's talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Like I didn't own the store that I was working for. I was just selling their products. Mm-hmm. Like I, I meant nothing to that company that I worked for. Not that, you know, they were bad people or something, but on paper, I meant almost nothing. Right. It's like, oh, you can work. Okay. We'll get you to work. And I got to work. <laughs> to drop another quote, that's what Belloc calls the terror imposed on the proletariat by a freedom unaccompanied by property, mm-hmm. right? You have that theoretical freedom, but you don't have the means of providing for yourself. Right. And I feel like we need to clarify. It's like part of the punishment of the fall is that we had to labor and we have to labor and we have to work. So, so that's a natural thing that we have to endure, but it's the, um, the circumstances in which we are working have been changed so drastically, mm-hmm. right? Like we don't, we don't till our own soil and grow our own food and survive based on the skills that we have. We've become dependent on all of these other things, these other constructs above us, like companies and factories and the man, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's yeah. not hipster to say. Working for the man. <laughs> <laughs> the um, it, it kind of reminds me. I know maybe I'm getting up my tinfoil hat, but I mean it is legit something he said. Um, Klaus Schwab, the head of the World Economic Forum, um, in 2016 said that his prediction about 2030 is that you will own nothing and you will be happy about it. Um. Right. And so, in other words, you'll be a slave. You'll be provided for. You will have to work by law Mm -hmm. and your masters will provide for you. And you know what? If you're a poor person in the capitalist society, that probably sounds amazing, Mm -hmm. even though technically you will be a slave. Yeah. 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 It does sound, it does sound a little, when when you say it like that, it does sound like a little, it sounds like the rhetoric I hear from like an anarchist or something like that. Does that make sense? Which one sounds like an anarchist? Like someone that says that, um, you know, you'll own nothing and be happy about it. And, you know, we basically have to overthrow the government to be free of it. 
I think it's the opposite. It's the opposite. Yeah. It's, it's the one world government that will own everything and you'll own nothing. Right. Okay. And you'll be happy because we'll take care of you. Yeah. yeah. That's basically what he's saying. Yeah. yeah. There is a desire to be free from that though. I think that I've, I've at least noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, I made a little note here cause I wanted to make sure that I shared it. Um, as we're growing up, like we don't want to be working for people higher than us. It's kind of like the American dream that you become your own boss. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But ultimately when you become your own boss, that sometimes entails having people working beneath you. So mm-hmm. the way in which you order that desire can either be really bad or it could be really good. The American dream is basically to become a capitalist mm-hmm. instead of a proletariat. Yeah. Basically to become one of the elite that owns the means of production. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is part of what kind of has sustained capitalism and sustained people's desire to keep that freedom mm-hmm. is the dream of that success. Yeah. Of if I work hard and I do the right things. I can be one of those successful few. And by do the right things, it means achieve the greatest amount of um, success, be it, you know, in your, in your job or meeting the right people or having the right pieces of paper with degrees on it or, or having the best idea or something like that. But at the end of the day, it's Mm -hmm. all about land and capital. Right. Like it's all about Mm -hmm. having that means of production, being in control of it and having the most of it. Um, Mm -hmm. I like, I like when businesses, like I've read of different businesses where they'll be like, you know, as a company, every employee has an equal share in the company. Yeah. I like that, that approach. I think that's, you know, very, that's a thing that's been, been done by a few companies. Yeah. It's great. But think about the morale of the people that would work for said company too, right? They actually feel like this is something I I, I want to take care of and, and pride myself, assuming it's a an ethical company that's doing great and good things, right? This is a thing that Belloc talks about, right, with the um, Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. People say with the advent of stuff like railroads, you have to have a mega corporation owning all the railroads. But that's not necessarily true. Like that technology could be harnessed by a system that spreads out the ownership of that capital, mm-hmm. something like a medieval guild, right? Like these, some guilds had expensive pieces of equipment that were shared between these artisans mm-hmm. that were too expensive for one person to own on their own. But, um, you know, as a as a group they would share the ownership of it this is totally possible and it's possible with corporations to things like factories like there are there are companies doing stuff like sure like chris said like sharing the ownership of even stock in the company with their employees well if we could scale it down to to a concept that might make sense so it's like you know you got a couple guys on the street that say hey we want to work on building tables. So they all pitch in their money and agree to have equal ownership of all of the machinery required to build tables. And then together they build tables and share the the wealth that would come from making these tables. Mm-hmm. 
assuming you needed some kind of advanced table making machine instead of just like a hammer and nails and woodworking tools. Sure. Whatever, whatever um, tools you needed to make tables. Yeah. You could do that as fancy as you wanted. This is why people say what they do about the industrial revolution, right? They think back in the day, you could just be a carpenter and own your own tools and make tables. Mm -hmm. But now we need a $10 million table making assembly line. So we need to have a mega corporation that owns a thousand of these in factories all over the world. I think they do that in Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not the case, right? Like even if you have these big factories, the ownership can still be shared. Yeah. Yeah. It can still be distributed. So is the ideal to free oneself from a capitalist lifestyle? I want to uh, is lifestyle the right word? I don't know. Mm, well, I mean, there's the society, but you can, yeah, live your life in a way that kind of props up the society and accepts it or in a way that militates against it. Yeah. Right? So it's like a self-employed lifestyle, the kind of thing that would free one from being forced to work under capitalist conditions. Well, to a degree, yeah. but, but it's still, yeah. I mean, it doesn't necessarily free you you don't necessarily have the ability to go out and seize the means of production right you might okay. not be able to but one thing and i think ryan grant talked about this um in his talk on distributism and belloc touched on it too in uh some of his writings about how in order to distribute property or um the means of production more widely people have to actually want it mm -hmm. That's one of the right. things that we lack in our society is people are complacent mm -hmm. with not owning the means of production. They don't care. You know, if you, this is one of the criticisms of distributism in theory. And it, as far as it goes, it's valid, right? People say you can't create a distributive state because the only way to do it would be for the government to seize everything and distribute it. But Belloc says, even if that were to be done, most people would just sell their means of production and you would get back into capitalism immediately. People would buy up more and more until people had nothing again because the people don't have the desire to be free in that sense. People don't have the uh, drive to be self-sufficient. And again, that rings, and, that rings so true in terms of so many things even today, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what um, Ryan Grant explained this really well, that basically there's no government-imposed solution to get you to a more distributive society. There may be like improvements to legislation they could make. You know, they could stop making certain policies that trend towards servile states. But the only way to really get there is for a grassroots change in the society. People have to be interested in building their own ability to be self-sufficient and building you know, the means of production for themselves. Mm -hmm. I do see that becoming more and more of a, I don't know, it's, it's kind of popping up in, in circles now. More and more people are starting to see that they don't want to have to rely on anybody else. Like I'm just going to use like people that do freelance work as an example. Um, like there's people that, you know, have their own little tiny home and they just kind of do their own freelance work 
and they just travel around and do that kind of thing. And they're not dependent on anybody else because they own their own means of taking photos or writing or whatever. I was just going to say to just prevent confusion in an absolute sense. It's not about being totally self-sufficient and not relying on anyone else. Mm -hmm. It's just about not, you know, having to rely on an employer in order to Mm -hmm. make your living. You still have to live in a society. If you're, you know, someone who makes tables, you can't just eat tables. (laughs) <laughs> you need you need to sell your tables. You need to yeah. buy your bread from the baker and stuff. Right? Put like, on your um, table. Like. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like everyone goes back to subsistence farming and that's yeah. what we want to establish. No, far from it. Like an industrialized and modern and advanced society can absolutely exist under these principles of distributed ownership and people would be a lot more free and we would still have all these modern goods we would still be able to you know produce things like computers and cell phones but you know your semiconductor factory would be owned by its workers mm-hmm. yeah stuff like that that's something yeah. that would be a gradual transition and it would take generations to make that that happen mm-hmm. I also I also and think that maybe as well that this isn't something that is truly possible in a in a society that has devolved away from the the Christian ideal. Um yeah. I don't mm-hmm. I don't see like for example, just an understanding of the dignity of the worker, you know, the church has a very clear clear teaching on the dignity of work and work workers that doesn't exist in, in normal society, right? We have an elevated understanding, at least on paper, Uh, not Pope Francis doesn't seem to understand what the dignity of the worker is, but like in general, the church has always taught about the dignity of the human person and the dignity of the worker and how much value they have. So, Mm-hmm. You know, I think in order to be able to even make a proper distributed state, you'd have to have generally a Christian society because yeah. again, like you said, you devolve into this, uh, into this sloth, this laziness, this, I don't have time t- for this. I would rather live my life in the pursuit of pleasure and, and, so you hand off, you know, your land and your livestock to somebody else to take care of, and you make them the money off of that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's like when things are rightly ordered and people aren't seen as only a means of production, yeah. right? But that we have far more value than just that. Like, yes, man has to work. But man also has to serve and to love God and love neighbor. And we're far more than, you know, beasts that turn a turn a wheel, right? Mm. And when you order things right to, well, you know, Joe that works at the factory isn't just a factory worker. He's beyond that and more than that. Yeah. And when you consider that, then yeah. things would rightly fall into place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a co-owner. 
of the factory. Like when I was, I was talking to Mike about how even when, um, like the original insurance um, organization that showed up, where farmers would kind of pool together their money and resources in cases of emergency, right? And now it's an abused form of money making by these massive financial corporations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were watching a a show about some flooding. Abuse. Yeah, yeah, just abuses by insurance companies leaving people, you know, just with nowhere to turn when they're, you know, being flooded. Yeah. But I pay my insurance. Ah, but it doesn't cover this kind of flooding. Yeah. And we were just talking about the fundamental purpose of insurance and how it evolved in a kind of distributive fashion from people who were farmers and they wanted a safety net. So they worked together to build it. But a capitalist insurance company is just working to take away your wealth and not give you your money's worth in return. And it manipulates you with fear, right? Like in fear and fear and risk. Yeah. It's a, it's usury. Yeah. It's usury, right? Like a hundred percent analogous to it anyway. Yeah. 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 It's definitely the same, the same category of sin of abusing the poor. Yeah. 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 Okay, so I got to get my Easter egg out there. Okay. The uh, appearance of Doug Ford. Oh, that's right. In the uh, yeah, <laughs> in the Serval State. When I finally got it, I was like, "There he is! There's Doug Ford!" <laughs> so, yeah. so for our American listeners, who is Doug Ford, Mike? Uh, the illustrious Premier of Ontario, the uh, most locked down jurisdiction in North America for sure. Maybe anywhere. I don't know. It's okay. Like, we're all champions. Yeah, we're all in this together. Um, <clears throat> so Belloc has this amazing way of describing the general um, types of people who are reformers in society. And there's two different types of socialist reformers he talks about. I'll kind of skip over them to the third one, which he says is like a very common person in society which he calls the practical man man for whom everything's about being practical and this man belloc says is characterized by the inability to define his principles and the inability to follow the consequences of his actions in other (laughs) words the inability to think and this just makes me think so much of our illustrious leader. Everything is about, I'm going to solve the immediate problem in front of me with whatever blunt instrument is at hand, no matter what consequences will follow from it next year or the year after. And he's dependent on like other people telling him things, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) He says in in the trend toward the servile state, each step towards the servile state is celebrated by the practical man because it's the solution to his immediate problem. <laughs> and he does not see beyond the immediate problem. Yep. Yep. That's him. <laughs> yep. Yep. So him. Yep. Let's close all the gyms and teach people cheesecake recipes. Yeah. It's for how's health. Every, how's everybody's sourdough starter going, right? Mm-hmm. Didn't make sourdough starter yet. Yeah. yeah. 
anyway, I just thought that was really funny. I yeah. was reading the description of this guy and I'm just like, yeah. When Doug Ford stands up and he's like, I'm a numbers guy. I follow the numbers. And when he says, I'm never going to do a Vax pass. And then next week he's like, well, I didn't want to do a Vax pass, but I have to. I'm just following the numbers. It's yeah. because he only cares about solving the immediate problem. He has no principles. He will use whatever blunt instrument is at hand to solve the immediate problem. He cannot think beyond it. But does it solve the problem? Well, his immediate problem is there are too many COVID cases. And he's just like, we got to get those numbers down. That's it. I don't care if we have to lock down the whole society. I don't care if I have to stand on my head and light myself on fire. As long as it lowers the numbers. And you know what? He does not care if he is like sending society on a spiral towards the complete loss of freedom as long as it solves his immediate problem yeah and and he doesn't own up to the fact that it it seemingly kind of did the opposite the numbers have never been higher there's nothing (laughs) it really didn't do anything we just we just kept following curves and you know what people react against it (laughs) (laughs) but i think like it's not some, maybe there is denial in it, but primarily I think it's that he doesn't have the ability to rigorously reason from principles and analyze the actual impact of his own actions. And this is why it is so important and why we have failed in the world to elect magnanimous leaders. There are none. Mm-hmm. There's certainly none in Canada, you know, like, no. And in the United States, I mean, it's a joke. It's a joke. Did you see, like, just recently, uh, uh, Joe Biden's wife, I don't know what her name is, Jill Biden, uh, you know, literally walking frail old Joe off, off the podium, you know, leading him by the hand people have memed it with like advertisements for uh you know nursing care over top of it you know like like instead of looking for a leader that will do the right thing that is magnanimous and virtuous the all the united states could see is we got to get rid of trump so we'll just do whatever it takes and like you said, like, whatever blunt inter- instrument is necessary, we'll just use to to get the job done. And like you said, w- where does it lead? True. And I mean, Trump is a product of the same thing, yeah. getting rid of Obama. I mean, there were better options for leaders. There were way more principled people. But uh, that's that's not what we vote for, you know. Yeah, like and and you know, people are ticked off about um, Justin Trudeau. I mean, he still won again by a minority v- vote, but still won again. You know, the Canadian people haven't learned their lesson, and you know, and it's the same with the United States. It's the same everywhere. You know, it's. We as a people don't understand we, the importance of magn- magnanimity. 
Yeah. Because we decided as the conservative party that our leader should be the practical man, Aaron O'Toole. Mm. The guy who changes his principles whenever it's convenient. The guy who runs as a pro-life conservative and then immediately changes upon becoming the leader because that's what I have to do to get elected and then loses the election by a landslide against the world's worst incumbent. Get literally, literally like was caught wearing blackface during the election cycle. And uh, yeah. He still managed to lose. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Anyway, that's the servile state, my friends. Mike, thank you. Thank you for, and Brooke, thank you for delving deep into this. I, I have learned a lot and I tried. You've done, you've (laughs) done very well. I've learned a lot. I mean, I listened, I've listened to it twice and reading it. I, to all of the listeners out there, I highly recommend not listening to it and actually reading it because <laughs> it's so easy to just like it goes in one ear and out the other not because you're not trying to listen but because you really need to absorb what's being said and so much of it hinges on certain passages that just define things and if you miss it oh yeah the rest of the book doesn't make sense i mean maybe there are smarter people there there are absolutely smarter people out there that could listen to it and be like, I know what that says and what he's saying. And I understand it completely, but I'm, I'm hoping that there are other people like me that maybe I'm not alone that you'd really benefit from reading it. It's not long. Like the audiobook is only four and a half hours long. And I think page wise, how many pages is it? On I was reading it on an ebook on my phone and it was just over a hundred pages. And that's, phone screen pages not real book size so it's very short but like brooke said there were a couple parts where i was like hold on let me go back a page and reread that oh yeah that makes sense Mm -hmm. like it's it's, worth reading it's much easier reading it than listening to it it is worth reading even if just just for the sake of perspective Mm -hmm. from someone that's writing it in 1912 and seeing how some of the things still relate so strongly today. Yeah, oh, it yeah. Sounds like, it thing. sounds like it's a prophetic like, work. Like, would you yeah. say that? Like, it's prophetic? Um, in some ways, yeah. It's mm-hmm. had a lot of accurate predictions, although a lot of things happened that Belloc could have never predicted. Like, this book was published in 1912, two years later, World War One. So mm-hmm. vast changes in society that he couldn't have predicted happened with the world wars. But like a lot of stuff is progressing along the lines that he predicted. Um, the other thing I was going to say is it, it serves to um, actually define things in your mind and make you know what you're talking about when it comes to stuff like socialism and distributism. I've noticed there are a lot of Catholic commentators who are kind of talking out their butts about both of those topics. <laughs> And commentate non-Catholics too, but a lot of people don't understand the terms when they're talking about them, and when they get into stuff like um, rerum novarum and stuff like that, that's more complicated. Some of the terms are dropped on the floor, right? Like when when the popes are condemning socialism and stuff. This is 
I think the definition that they are looking at, you know, a state where the government seizes the means of production and doesn't allow the people to own it. That is what's condemned by the church specifically. I mean, you can argue about different government policies today that we call socialist, but that's not really directly what's condemned. What's condemned is the idea that the people can't own their own property and their own productive property. That's what the church has said. Uh -uh. <laughs> and then distributism too, right? There are some, there's like Catholic wars. There are some people who are just like, distributism is just socialism. There are some really high profile people, like even Taylor Marshall will say that. He'll say distributism is not good. It's literally just socialism. And he's talking right out his butt. <laughs> he doesn't even know that he doesn't even know the definition it's ridiculous so i don't know <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not touching that. sorry to call you out taylor marshall because i'm often a fan but uh, i don't, want, I don't just... want him showing up on my doorstep with a shotgun and two cute puppies named duke and daisy you know <laughs> actually that that would be fine he could he could bring his dogs and come in have a barbecue. Yeah, he could probably be still wrong about distributing. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, I thought if it's okay with you, I'd like to end with um with something from scripture, mm -hmm. and uh, and then we'll close out. This is Galatians five verses one thirteen to fifteen. Saint Paul says, "For freedom, Christ has set us free." Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you are not consumed by one another. All right. So thanks so much, everyone, for listening to today's podcast. We'd love to know your thoughts. Are we in a servile state? Are we getting there? Let us know. Um, message us on Facebook or DM on Instagram at Theology of the Buddy. You can give us a shout on Twitter at StayTraddy or email us at TheologyofTheBuddy at gmail.com. Again, we'd love for you to subscribe. You can find us on Apple podcast spotify stitcher google podcast youtube tune in or wherever you listen to great podcasts um, please also uh, like i said give us a five-star review if you can it really helps us out so we'll be back in two weeks uh, and we will be sharing with you <laughs> one thing for sure that i know we'll be sharing is how to speak southwestern ontarian so uh, you're definitely gonna want to uh, tune in and hear all about that so until next time, stay, stay chatty. chatty.